Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast, a production of the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University. We are thrilled that you're here today. We do a little more uh, biography in this episode than usual, so we're going to jump right in. We're glad you're here. This is Kingdom Ethics. Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall. Are you really? Most times. I'm Most David, of the time. I'm David Gushy. If you enjoy this podcast, my name is Jeremy Hall. If you don't, um, then my name is Edwina Calgill. <laughs> and you can send uh, letters to Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercy University. Nice job, Jeremy. Doing my best. So I'm, here's a fun way to start. I'm a Doctor Who fan. Have been for a very long time to an extent that's almost embarrassing. Uh, when you say the phrase, the doctor, because for those of you out there who aren't properly educated and don't understand the great uh, science fiction time and space adventure that is the BBC's 50 plus year running show, Doctor Who, the titular character of the doctor changes actors every so often. The, he's an alien and anytime he almost dies, he regenerates. Into oh. a new actor. It's a brilliant move if you're designing a TV show. So lots of different people. 13 people have played the doctor. 14 people have played the doctor. And so when you say the doctor to a Doctor Who fan, someone pops up in their head as the doctor. And it's different for different people based on when they started or who they connected with. So if you say the doctor, um, I either see Tom Baker, the fourth doctor, because he was the first one I saw on PBC as a kid watching BBC reruns. Um, or, uh, this is a very controversial thing I'm about to say in my subculture, Peter Capaldi, the <gasps> controversial, angsty, angry old man who was the recent 12th Doctor. And so, you've got some Catholic background and continued exposure. When I say the Pope, which Pope do you think of? I would say John Paul II. JP II. Yeah. So, today we're going to talk. That was not rehearsed, people. I'm... <laughs> very pleased with how that went it could have gone some other cool directions but yeah today we're going to talk about john paul ii um a particularly interesting figure in history and someone that we've classified as one of the great moral leaders for a divided age worth talking about before reading this book the only other place i had encountered uh john paul ii was in um in Aikman's uh, book, Great Souls, which is six uh, great leaders all of the 20th century. I, so I'd read the brief bio chapter on him there, and then uh, Moral Leadership for a Divided Age. And I was shocked at how much I didn't know about this guy, because he's one of these characters that... He's a character. He's someone that all of us can find his face, and we can pull some information to, and we know a little bit about him. We, He's the Pope, so he goes over here and he cares about these sorts of things. Um, but in my mind, before these two books, he was like the Pope that hung out with Bono and liked to go uh, snow skiing. And that's about all I had. Um, so we enter we enter the, the Catholic side of um, moral leadership. And I think one place to begin is that moral is that Pope's rarely, rarely played the kind of role that John Paul II played. In fact, I would say he redefined the papacy. Mm -hmm. That's how you say that. When you're talking about the office, it's the papacy. The office of the papacy. That is correct. Um, he, rede he redefined what a pope would be, could be. And 
he almost like broke the mold because he was such a celebrity and such a charismatic figure and so young, relatively speaking, that nobody's really been able to to match him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he comes into the papacy at an exciting moment, right? He comes right after JP1, right? Uh, He follows the September Pope. JP1 lasted one month. Yeah. Um, But he, he followed... So everyone's looking. Because people get excited about, even people that aren't Catholic get excited about the pageantry of a new pope. And so we just selected a new pope. The smoke went the right color. There were the parades. Right. Christ has a new vicar. Um, oh, we need a new one. Yeah. Um, Second Super Bowl this year. <laughs> but I, I would say, here's wh- here's here's where I would start the story. He was the first non-Italian pope. It's like 400 455 years, I believe. He opened the door to the global Catholic Church really being represented in the office of the pope. But they got somebody who was who was maybe even more than they bargained for. So let's kind of do a little bit of a review. Carol Wojtyla, I think that's how you say his name, um, was uh, born in Poland. A Poland that was briefly in the interwar period between World War One and World War Two free. Mm-hmm. This is reinstituted Poland. Right. He was a fierce Polish patriot, as was just about everybody. He he was very bright. He was a thespian. He wanted to be an actor. He was he he was good with languages. He was a devout Catholic. But um, it was really only after losing his mother, his brother, and his father. He was on his own by about the age of 20 or 21. Was 21 when his father died. Yeah. And, and then the Nazis come to Poland. He's on his own in the world in, in some ways. He pursues an underground seminary education, kind of like, Bonhoeffer was offering over in Germany, though that ended by the time of the war. Um, The Nazis attempted to destroy the Polish nation, not by killing every Pole, though they killed at least six million Poles. That's just genocidal killing. There was all the war casualties, too. But, um, but, But the Catholic Church was seen as the center of Polish national identity and strength. And so... So they decided to go after the leading Poles, Polish Catholics. And so priests were killed, some nuns mm-hmm. were killed, monks were killed, uh, and Catholic intellectuals were, were at risk too. And they, they like shaved off the upper class. That's the way educated. to th- Yeah. That's the way to think about it. Not that different from the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian strategy was to decapitate the society, not to kill everybody, but to take the top. Of course, they took them into exile. And appropriate them for the use of the empire. Right. And the Nazis just did more of a mass slaughter. So despite the fact that theological education was underground, uh, young Karol Wojtyla did it. Um, he actually was in Krakow. Krakow was not that far from a little town called Auschwitz, which is uh, the Polish word for what became the Germans called Auschwitz. And so... Uh, he was very near the the symbol of of the Holocaust and the place where the highest number of people were murdered. 
Um, he survived the war, continued his theological education, turned out to be a brilliant student, like so many of the moral leaders, they're smart and well-educated when they can be, and rapidly climbed the ladder of the Polish Catholic Church, which by this point was under communism. Because, you know, at the Cold War division of Europe, the East went to the communists, to the, to the Russians, and the West was, you know, Britain, France, America. Mm-hmm. Right? They fell on the East side of the curtain. They did. And so, to, to understand his passions, you have to understand, he lived through two to- totalitarian, or nearly totalitarian, tyrannies. He lived through two tyrannies, Nazism and then communism. Hated both. And saw them both as a fundamental threat to Christianity and to human dignity. But he climbed the ladder. The, the communists could not destroy the Catholic Church. They had, to, they had to deal with it. So he becomes bishop at the age of 38, which is amazingly young, 1958. There's still time. I can do this. Archbishop in 1964. Cardinal in 67. And then... October 22nd, 1978, he's inaugurated as Pope John Paul II at the age of 58, which made him an impossibly young man to become Pope. He was still a skier and an athlete, and, you know, as somebody nearing that age, I think that's pretty cool. So You could still be the Pope. I could. I've got a chance. Um, <laughs> so I think it's interesting... He, he becomes Pope um, at a time where the captive peoples of Eastern Europe are, and especially Poland, are really, really weary of communist rule. I mean, the Polish people find him a symbol of their national aspirations. Um, Catholicism is a symbol of their independent identity from communism, which is, you know, a godless tyranny out of Russia. Um, and so, when you, if you live through those days, and I did, his navigating of bringing the moral pressure of the Catholic faith to bear on communism while it was weakening because it was weakening in the 80s, and it finally collapsed in the late 80s and early 90s. Soviet Union died. A Cold War ended. The captive nations became free again and have been trying to figure out what they're going to be ever since, right? But um, kind of like his, his, the trio of most visible kind of conservative leaders at this time were Margaret Thatcher, who was Prime Minister of Britain, Ronald Reagan, who was president of the U.S., and John Paul II. Holy Trinity. <laughs> and they all were anti-communist. They all sensed the weakness of the Soviet Union. They all wanted to weaken it further. Nobody imagined it would just disappear, just collapse like it did, but they were hoping to defeat it. But um, John Paul II, I mean, he made a, a couple of very memorable trips back to Poland after he became pope. The communist officials were so nervous about it. They were huge affairs. Huge crowds. It might. I think it was in the moral leadership book that I read that it's estimated that one in three Poles saw him on that trip. The, a third of the whole country showed up um, 
on his to see him when he was there. And this is a immensely terrifying thing when you're a governing force that's afraid of your people. Yeah, yeah. And so on his visits, he just he mainly articulated the values that he believed Catholic Poland stood for. And the outpouring of support communicated that the the communist rulers of Poland did not have the support of their people. So he's he was clever in leveraging his office to articulate the values that every form of totalitarianism suppresses. Freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, human dignity, rule of law, the basic worth and rights of the human person. And so that is where uh, some of his intellectual output went to. Also kind of like Bonhoeffer, while while being politically uh, engaged, he was also a brilliant writer and theologian. Um, he had training, he had doctoral level training in Christian ethics. And so his writings in various areas are very rich. His encyclicals are breathtaking. They are. I mean, I think that's another thing that's been harder for other people to keep up with. I mean, not every pope is a doctoral level Mm -hmm. expert in theology and ethics, right? I think we're seeing that Pope Francis, uh, he doesn't have the same intellectual heft. Uh, He's smart, but he doesn't Mm -hmm. have that kind of training. He's a feeler. Yeah, he is, yeah. His strength comes from his theological ethical imagination that flows through his love for people and desire for justice rather than a a heady approach yeah and i think i mean to our scholars or budding scholars who may be listening i mean there is no substitute for education for reading it's like musculature it's like Mm -hmm. working out in the brain and and more than the brain the more of that you have the more resources you have to bring to bear on the challenges that you face right so um he had that I think his most significant document is was called Evangelium Vitae, or the Gospel of Life. It came out in 1995. It was very influential for me at a pivotal stage in my journey. It is his uh, fullest articulation of um, his moral vision. And it's about the immeasurable worth of each and every life. And the formulation that he came up with still is the favorite Catholic formulation from conception or from the womb until natural death. And so he really did care about all of it. And so the book talks about euthanasia. It talks about the death penalty, about war, about violence um, and murder, um, but also about uh, abortion and, uh, birth and birth control and euthanasia. But it's uh, it's a passionate appeal to the West, especially, um, not to solve its problems by killing people. And I think that that challenge remains. Got a criminal? Kill them. Got a baby you don't want? Kill it. Got an old person who doesn't have much quality of life anymore? Kill yourself. Or let them die. Um, got an enemy? Kill them. And he he argues on the basis of scripture and tradition that this is not the Christian vision. But also, once you establish that as the bottom line, then there's other concerns 
it's not just that you want human beings not to die, you want them to flourish. Mm-hmm. And so a sacredness of life ethic is an ethic of human flourishing. So it has to do with all the conditions of life that enable a person to thrive. And so that's about, it's about hunger, health care, uh, education, basic human rights. It's a fully developed pro-life ethic. Right. It's the whole life. Right. And, and you know, it's so obvious. Any of us know that if we have somebody that we love, let's take a child. You want, um, you want them to flourish in all aspects of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, if I have two grandchildren I'm crazy about, I don't just want them to live. I want them to flourish. I want them to thrive. I want every possible thing to happen to them that can help them to thrive and to flourish. In a sense, the sacredness of life vision and its ultimate expression, um, you know, it's about it's about the flourishing of every person on the planet. It's beautiful, really, and I think that's his his greatest intellectual contribution. So his greatest political contribution, you might say, was helping to delegitimize communism and help it to die its own natural death without that much mm-hmm. bloodshed. And that was it. He was antagonistic towards uh, the other two members of that trinity who were very sure that eventually someone was going to have to fight. Uh, Reagan wanted to completely overpower um, the Soviets. Thatcher wanted to overpower and outspend the Soviets, force them to overplay their hand. And uh, this pope thought he could, through reason and conversation and a gradual enlightenment and spread of truth it would fall under its own the weight of its absurdity the pope doesn't have battalions he doesn't have weapons Mm -hmm. he he has moral pressure and that is what he exerted but and yeah there was some concern about about the accelerating arms race with nuclear weapons and the Catholic Church is strongly opposed to any use or threat of use of nuclear weapons. So I remember as a young seminarian in the 80s being really afraid that that this thing with the Soviet Union was going to end in some kind of catastrophic nuclear exchange and um, and look for a while like that was a heightening risk. Mm-hmm. But in the end, um, the Soviet Union collapsed. Now it should be noted that their weapons, most of them, were not destroyed. They they are still around. They're in various places, often unaccounted for. Uh, at least that's the risk. That's the fear. So, um, and and Russia remains in its post-communist form a kind of a a tyrannical and dangerous place. Um, but but anyway, the Cold War was the looming shadow over everybody who grew up in the 50s and 60s and 70s. The fear of nuclear war, the fear of a permanent proxy fight all over the world between the West and the East over every country. And I would say a lot of people deserve credit, including uh, Mikhail Gorbachev in the Soviet Union and uh, George H.W. Bush in the U.S. and others for helping the Soviet Union to die a peaceful death. But I think John Paul II played a role. He also, having um, experienced the, the Holocaust 
as a as an onlooker in Poland, um, was very sensitive to Jewish Catholic relations. He he visited Jerusalem and the Wailing Wall, and um, he he was the first pope to do that. Uh, the first pope to go to the chief uh, synagogue in Rome. I visited there. Interesting place. Um, and uh, he was a he was a a peacemaker in Christian Jewish and Christian Muslim relations. He was trying he tried to build bridges both to Protestants and to the Eastern Orthodox. Um, he had a high degree of imagination and creativity when it came to staging public events. Maybe um, that thespian background. It, it, clearly, he was a brilliant speaker and a caring pastor. Um, I mean, there are things that can be criticized, but I don't want him to be lost to memory. I think, you know, our more progressive students and listeners, I would probably fault him on abortion if they don't agree with him on abortion. Mm -hmm. Or uh, he wasn't terribly sympathetic to liberation theology, kind of conservative there, and that's going to be an issue like with Romero in in El Salvador. Um, But but there are reasons for that, too. I think he, he understood... Latin American liberation theology through the lens of his experience with communism in the East, in Eastern Europe, and so he was concerned that liberation theology was Marxist and Marxism is bad because it's it's communist, right? And, and so therefore liberation theology was dangerous. So he wasn't terribly sympathetic mm-hmm. to liberation theology, but in a sense he was doing his own liberation theology just in a different context with a different, so different intellectual framework. The Catholic Church, as we are speaking today, is reeling over the sex abuse scandal, scandals, with leading clerics being prosecuted or even defrocked, including a cardinal in Australia and um, a cardinal in the U.S. Um, John Paul II did not respond adequately to what was known about the sex abuse problem during his papacy. And um, now some people would say that it's the intrinsic, unchanging structure of the Catholic Church that renders the Catholic Church deeply vulnerable to... um, sex abuse on the part of an all-male priesthood, and then cover-ups on the part of a hierarchy whose number one goal is to protect the institution. And that the only way to change that is to utterly change the culture, which, which might require a reconsideration of an all-male celibate priesthood. But I don't think the Catholic Church is going to do that. Now, for those Protestants who are now feeling very proud, uh, do know that around the time of the latest uh, sex abuse thing breaking in the Catholic Church, there was a big list of Southern Baptist uh, pastors and church volunteers published sex abuse of their own. This is a, it's a human problem, and it's a Christian problem. It's not just a Catholic problem. I do believe that every structure needs checks and balances, needs oversight, and needs uh, m- multiple types of leaders in the room when decisions are being made. An aging, all-male, celibate 
hierarchy of priest, bishop, cardinal, and pope is not, has not proven very effective in dealing with their, with their problems in this area. The fiercest criticism comes from within. It comes from within voices in the Catholic Church who are trying to protect young people and who are trying to challenge the institution to look out for the young and the vulnerable more than the institution itself. It's very hard for institutions to do, but they need to. So it appears that pretty much every pope since the scandals have broken have had the same problem. So it's it's a structural problem. It's not just a John Paul II problem, but it's something to keep in mind. Uh, he can be critiqued for his still very patriarchal, even if kind of uh, romantic understanding of women. Mm-hmm. He had a very strong piety around Mary. He uh, attributed his healing after his the assassination attempt to the Fatima yeah. vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but his his I think his vision of the ideal woman was was mother. And um but women have gifts and calling in a lot of other areas too. And so he was very much a traditionalist. How will the Catholic Church open its arms to fully valuing professional women and non mother women and non traditional women, um, and not just traditional mother women you know right and um so this is an issue that's but it's also it's it's kind of built into the structure as well it's the deep imagination of the catholic church you know so uh, maybe this is a place to leave it our traditions including the grand tradition of the catholic church of which all christians are heirs they give us sustenance intellectual depth spiritual resources but they all have their own built-in limitations so I think a, a posture towards tradition of deep study and critical engagement, respectful but critical engagement, is called for. Before we take a listen to the uh, audiobook sample for the leadership lessons, what do we need to hear John Paul II saying to us? What, what, what does 2019 need from JP2. About stop killing each other. We are recording on the morning after a horrible slaughter in New Zealand, in uh, Moss, in Christchurch, New Zealand, a place that I visited. Such a peaceful little town. Mm-hmm. Stop killing each other. Stop hating each other. Stop dehumanizing each other. Stop ridiculing each other. Stop degrading each other. Look on each human being as the sacred thing, sacred person that they are. And one way to know whether you are in the presence of moral wrong, you might say, is whether um, people are being dehumanized. And um, that must be resisted. He said that as comprehensively and as deeply as anybody has in my lifetime. That's not bad. That's a good word. Let's uh, take a listen to those leadership lessons. Leadership Lessons Pope John Paul II's life and work offer a number of important lessons about moral leadership. Spiritual formation sustains you. All his life, People praise the piety of Pope John Paul II. 
Spiritual practices, such as prayer or meditation, sustain you, form you, help you see the good in others, and maintain your courage and energy to persevere. Dialogue is not the same as surrender. John Paul II never deviated from Orthodox Christian doctrine, and yet he spent much of his life trying to dialogue with those who did not hold those beliefs. It is possible, and necessary, to talk to people with whom you completely disagree. Learn languages. John Paul II's fluency in a variety of languages made him a better leader. Learning another language helps you build new relationships and forces you to encounter another culture and way of thinking. Combine intellect with prayer. John Paul II could have let his academic accomplishments go to his head, yet everyone remarked on his humility and constant prayer. Prayer can remind you of the source of all creation and the blessings in your life, inspiring you to continue learning while reminding you that knowledge alone does not guarantee a life well lived. Don't underestimate political savvy. Moral leadership requires being willing to lean into the world in all its messiness and controversy. That requires a certain amount of political savvy, something we see easily in political figures, but can also recognize and commend in religious figures such as John Paul II. Seek diverse experiences. Who knows whether Waitiwa saw theater or working in a stone quarry as preparation for the papacy, and yet without these experiences, he would not have been the same person. Seek out diverse experiences and do not devalue what you already bring to the table. John Paul II's deep faith and Christian belief drove his concern for human life. Precisely by contemplating the precious blood of Christ, he wrote, the believer learns to recognize and appreciate the almost divine dignity of every human being. Yet he always strove to find ways of communicating that appealed to both Christians and people of other faith traditions. The challenge made him a more eloquent and forceful communicator, a moral leader presenting a different vision of human purpose. Rarely has someone more forcefully and eloquently articulated the inherent worth and dignity of all people than John Paul II. The dignity of this life is not linked only to its beginning, to the fact that it comes from God, he said, but also to its final end, to its destiny of fellowship with God in knowledge and love of Him. He was a brilliant young man, kept humble through piety. He survived heartbreak, loss, and two murderous regimes, and then built a new global family out of the entire Catholic Church. He refused to be sucked into a false choice between freedom and order. True freedom, he insisted, is not advanced in the permissive society, which confuses freedom with license to do anything whatever, and which in the name of freedom declares a general amorality. Freedom is not the license to dominate or destroy in the name of individual gain, national pride, or imagined progress. Freedom is a gift. The freedom to be of service to others, Others whose lives are precious to God. All right. I always enjoy those. It's really cool that the publisher lets us use that. That's from the audiobook. You can find it on Amazon and on Audible. They did a great job with it. We highly recommend it. Seems like a good place to stop. Thanks, David. Thanks, Jeremy. 
Thank you for tuning in for JP2's episode of this podcast, Season 1, which is this exploration of great moral leaders. Once we're done with this, we will be headed into conversations on current events, popular ethical quandaries, and the system of kingdom ethics, and how you can be an ethical Christian. Please like, subscribe, rate, share. Thanks for listening. This is the Kingdom Ethics Podcast.